Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash Thrive. That's E-C-K. F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeld. I'm your host. And our guest today is Clayton Turner. He is CEO of HPLC. We're going to talk to him about technology in the cannabis space, particularly around the processing side. Like how do you actually take this product from organic plant material to the things that we uh, see in the dispensaries, see in the uh, retail environment? A lot of steps in here. There's a lot of technology, a lot of innovation that's happened over years. But some of that is complicated. Some of that is uh, difficult to put in place, difficult to take out when you no longer need it. So we're going to talk a little bit about where the opportunities are. How do we create technologies that are going to be both effective, are going to be sustainable, leverage a lot of the um, green opportunities within the industry? Obviously, very concerned in the cannabis space, making sure that we're creating uh, environmentally friendly, environmentally sustainable industry here. Um, it does take up a lot of energy. Well, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about this, but the processing of cannabis is energy intense. So I'm curious to have this conversation. I'm excited to have it because I think that there's a lot of opportunities. There's a lot of growth in the industry. 
industry, a lot of innovation happening. So with that, Clayton, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. So let's get a little bit of your background first. How did you get into cannabis? Why cannabis? How did you get into what are you doing today? And then we can we can kind of dig into some of the tech stuff that you're working on. Sure. Um, about five or six years ago, with a minor investment, I bought into a company called Rainier Distillers, who'd been in the cannabis game in medical for about eight years and been around for 10 years. They're a small Yelm, Washington company making stills. And uh, they were making a product that replaces the rotary evaporator uh, called the Weed Witch. And so I thought that that was a real opportunity to get into medical cannabis when it was still MPOs and stuff before it had transitioned into big business and to kind of get a lay of the land so that, you know, three to four years out, five years out as the market matured, I could be in a position to really, you know, as it went recreational and potentially federally legalized nationwide, that that would be a huge opportunity to get involved in that. Yeah. And so just orient ourselves a little bit when we talk about the distilling and I mean, th- this is what part of the, I guess, where do you fit within the kind of the the supply chain of cannabis? How do you relate to cultivators? How do you relate to retailers? Give us a little sense of how you fit into this world. Sure. So me personally, with the companies that I spawned from Rainier Distillers, which was Washington State Enterprises and Biosmart Research, um, and my current venture with Santa Fe Farms, who have 700 acres down in New Mexico with Stephen Gluckstern, the, we went from uh, these smaller, you know, retail items is where we started. You know, uh, this is an evaporator. What the evaporator does is it evaporates the solvent that you have. So you're left with your crude oil, or you might use it in winterization to clean up your product and then you filter it and it's got solvent. You want to evaporate and capture that solvent. That was the first thing I learned how to do. It went from there into short pathing, which is fractional distillation to make your distillate products and so on for the medical industry and uh, larger fractional distillation with uh, molecular falling films and thin films. We stepped up our processing capacity drastically when we became a bioscience company. That's when I started stepping into a process called chromatography, wherein you separate molecules. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's uh, the way it works is very interesting. And this is super important to where we're heading in the industry. Yeah, This is really the most bleeding edge, in my opinion, technology in hemp and cannabis right now. What it allows you to do is you can think of it like that game Plinko. You ever see that with the little pegs on the board yeah. and you drop the balls through and they hit the pegs. Yeah. So imagine that you have two different size metal balls that you're dropping through those pegs and that you extend that thing up really high. We're talking, you know, say it was 40 feet tall with these tiny little pegs. When you dump in the bigger balls and the smaller balls, the smaller balls will separate from the bigger balls because they'll miss a peg every once in a while. So they'll move faster through the the thing than than not. So what that does is that if you think about that, like molecules, now the molecules are doing it with ionic pull and static charge and polarity, Mm -hmm. how much they like water or not, if they're hydrophobic. And there's a product that's used. It's an organic product called carbon, right? Carbon 18. It's a (laughs) 18 chain piece of carbon. So, so that fills or uh, column, and when you push your solvent through it, it changes the speed of different molecules, which you watch with UV light, and then you're able to turn a spigot and divert the flow of your solvent that allows you to pull out those specific different molecules. And they've been doing this 
for years on production scale in Asia. And we, but the problem is we don't do it in America. We don't have any. All of our HPLC operation is by petroleum people mm. for inorganic product. So there was HPL usage in a different form for insulin through a company called Thar, but they don't have the the real tech to do what people are looking to do. Yeah. So our company realized that if people wanted to make, and this was still back in medical, when it was transitioning first thing in Washington to recreational, because we're here in Washington state. So when that was happening, we thought we'd go out and get a unit that might do a kilo a day, right? So normally those things are about half a million dollars, right? So we went out and get oh, wow. one of these units direct from a factory, yeah. And what it allows us to do is we could separate out all of the isolated cannabinoids. We could do CBN, I could do CBG, I could do THCV, we could do CBL, you could do the flavonoids, which are huge. Flat, uh, canaflavin A and B mm-hmm. are 30 times more powerful, according to Chicago Tribune, 30 times more powerful of an anti-inflammatory and pain reliever than aspirin, right? Wow. So you're talking about a non-addictive product that can be organically extracted that has limited side effects and has non is non-addictive that can be a oxycotton you know killer because yeah. it, it does the job better yeah. so and that's what the research that we were helping the university of washington do proved uh, they will show you that at the uw that a ratio of 10 milligrams cbd to three milligrams thc is the magic number and that will drastically reduce people's reliance on painkillers you see yeah. a I think it's a five to 10 times fold reduction in painkiller use of other painkillers when you use that combination of cannabinoids. So they've got all the reports they published on that and everything. So we thought we'd get this machine and we'd isolate all these different cannabinoids. But then hemp happened and we realized we'd have to do 50,000 pounds a day. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think you mentioned one kilogram a day. This machine would produce one kilogram a day for a half million dollar machine. Yeah. And you got to look at it this way, too, which is nuts, is that the when you're in THC space, like let's let's look at the math here for the economics of it. When you're in the THC space and I have one kilogram and I'm giving you, say, one kilogram of edibles that have something that no one else has and I'm in an emerging market. Let's look at where I'm putting a license in right now. Chicago. I've got two of these going in. Transport licenses on one of them, infuser license on the other. And so we've got, say you have one kilo of isolated products. So it's going to be almost 99% pure. So you have a thousand grams of this product. Mm -hmm. Well, an edible typical dosage, you might have 10 milligrams. Yeah. So for a hundred milligram package, you know, you're looking at getting out of every gram, you're going to get 10 doses per gram. So you're looking at 10,000 units and just a THC edible alone in Chicago can run you, I mean, well, well, like, let's look at Boston because the Chicago market hasn't happened yet, but Boston's running 60 bucks a pack. Now here in Washington, once your market stabilizes, it's 10 to 15. Mm -hmm. But even here, people would pay double for something they couldn't get anywhere else. People would buy, like for CBN for sleep, they'd pay 30. So let's say they didn't even pay double, like a $60 bag of edibles. Let's say they're paying a hundred, right? So one kilo is going to get you you know, a thousand units at 80 bucks. Yeah. You're looking at a hundred gram, but that's only going down to one gram, but each gram has 10, 10 milligram doses. Oh yeah. Actually, yeah. A million dollars. Actually much higher. So you're at 10,000 units. 
times 80. So you're, you're, you know, out of one kilo, you could spend 800 grand, right? Yeah. In, in total retail, yeah. you know, if you sold every package, if whatever, if yeah, all your prices are 100% in a margin market. Now, once that dials down, you'll be making like 100 grand on your edibles, 200 yeah. grand. But here was our thoughts. There's 130 to 180 individual cannabinoids. Then you have each terpene, which, by the way, we went out and flavored a beer with terpenes and not like Hemperer did it with bong water. We isolated. <laughs> we ran. Yeah, we yeah. ran chromatography on the beer itself. So we actually looked because hops have the same terpenes yep. as, as hemp. So we looked at all the different terpenes. And we isolated out the ones in the beer, and then we added hemp terpenes to make profiles reminiscent of, like, say, tangy banana strain, which has a very nice orange, and uh, it goes great with beer, kind of like a blue moon. Uh So we adjusted their terpene levels of their beer, and this is with Argus Brewery out of Chicago. Uh We made it so that their beer could hit the exact same every time it went off the shelf. It was the same. So no matter the hops they get, you look at Pabst Blue Ribbon. It was really something back in 1885 or whenever it won that that ribbon. Yeah. But but the hops each year and consistently getting the same hops is the problem. And if your hops change or you degrade to a lower hop or whatever, Mm -hmm. the flavor of your beer gets worse or better or whatever. So because of that. What we thought is, why don't you just look at who's winning at beer and then make the profile match? So that's another cool thing we did with chromatography. So, and so just understand, so you're doing this, you're basically using hemp terpenes to adjust or to dial in the flavor profile of a beer. That's correct. Yes. So like what we're looking at is that you can use the terpene profile of individual terpenes. Yeah do proper chromatography, and then you can make a beer taste like whatever you want. I can pour in basically Gorilla Glue number four into a Corona, and it tastes like a blue moon. It's really cool. So so there, it's it. just about the right ratios. You don't want to poison yourself. With none of the THC no. uh, effect. No, because we're looking at just isolated terpenes, right? So the neat thing about that is, and, I, and this is a misconception a lot of people have that you might have cleared up on your show, but the difference in an indica or a sativa isn't going to be your cannabinoid content. Yeah. So you're, you're going to have the same amount of THC. You're going to have the same amount of CBN usually. I mean, you might have varying degrees yeah. of certain cannabinoids, but totally not a significant amount. The big variance is your terpenes. Yeah. And so the big altering effect of being in the couch, like Indica, uh-huh. is largely myrcene. So you make a hoppy beer with a lot of myrcene in it, and you're going to be a little bit more, you know, in the couch. You're going to be a little more tired. Yeah. yeah. So you can actually do targeted effects, which is how we designed our dog food. We did Vital Essentials. They're the biggest raw dog food in the country. They're out of Wisconsin. Uh-huh. They wanted locally sourced product in Wisconsin. We found it for them. Uh-huh. And uh, we, we made their product with distillate and not with crude oil. The reason why is there's a big problem, in my opinion, out there with pet treats, with CBD pet treats. Yeah. That is, people use the least expensive product to make, which is crude. Yeah. The problem with crude is that crude does contain limonene, it does contain uh, uh, linalool, and it does contain camphor. Mm-hmm. So those are all toxic to dogs and cats. Um, really? I didn't know that. Oh. Yeah, yeah. If you Google essential oil and pets, you'll typically find not great articles. In fact, if you also Google limonene and cats or limonene and dogs, mm-hmm. the first things that pop up is the toxicity. And so it's called citrus toxicity yeah. um, specifically. Well, and these these are terpenes that are in other products other than cannabis, right? I mean, they, they show up in other 
other plant. You don't want to give your dog oranges either. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's what I'm saying. Like, you yeah. don't want to give them onions and stuff. There've been reports as to, you don't want to give your, you know, there's even a big recent report. Don't give your dog, don't feed them just vegetables because they're the bad things will happen. Part of that is their inability to yeah. process these terpenes in my opinion. Yeah. Um, but it's also in the opinion of a lot of research that you don't want to be giving these animals all the terpenes that you and I could ingest. It doesn't necessarily affect them well. Yeah. Um, but it does affect there are plants like your dog might eat grass and so on. There are terpenes that these animals do seek. And so we did is we looked at the research and we took out all the ones that are toxic by that same way we made the beer. We took out the ones that are toxic, but the hard part was this to make a product that you could give to an animal. It has to have a dosing metric. And this is raw dog food, irregularly shaped chunks of meat. Mm -hmm. So we had to design a system that throughout the entire piece of meat continuously, not a coating, nothing like that, Mm -hmm. but that the meat itself would be homogenized and have uh, an exact distribution. If they they happen to bite only half a piece of meat, they yeah. you knew that they were taking you know proportionally the same amount. They weren't going to get a you know a, a a concentrated dose in one piece of the meat versus the other piece of the meat. Correct. Yeah, you don't. And that's that's how we do it in Washington for all of our edibles. They need to be homogenization tested. So we yeah. knew that was a thing we'd have to do. But this is raw meat. So we came up with a delivery system that was unique to carnivore uh, dog food, whose vital essentials, um, and, and we found a way to actually get the meat infused with CBD and then freeze-dried, because this is freeze-dried. So we had to survive the freeze-drying process and keep the terpenes intact and only put in the isolated terpenes we want. And down the road, one of the great things we're going to be doing is as more research is available, remember there's 130 to 180 other cannabinoids, we we made a relax, revive, and relief formula. So what we want to be able to do is as the research comes out, we don't want to jump the gun. We thought trim this down to the stuff we know is most safe, right? Mm -hmm. And then once the research gets more solid, add on these other components individually for targeted effects. We believe we could do this with vape cartridges. We believe we could do this with edibles and all of that. But it goes back to that problem is the machinery. That stuff, you know, that that was our biggest problem to solve. And and that's where it gets into green energy and everything else. Yeah. Yeah. So I see, I get that. I mean, there's this fascinating market opportunity. Like I imagine the, um, you know, like the soda machines that you go up to now and you kind of just, you dial in what it is and it just squirts in the right combination of things. Like I could, I could go up to a machine, you know, dial in the effect that I want and it would combine all the different, you know, particles and the molecules into the exact mix that would be perfect for me. But that all, that all is dependent on being able to create or, or process the raw bioproduct in the right way to create those, to create the raw materials and the of quality and the right consistency and of the different types. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So tell us about how you've incorporated kind of the green, green energy, green technology into this process. What are some of the challenges that you've had that you've overcome? Where are we in terms of the state of the technical side of this? Right. So the biggest thing about it was scaling up that technology to isolate the cannabinoids because that's what we have to do in hemp. In cannabis, it's the thing that's just great to do. You go, oh, I'm going to make this vape cartridge with THCV, so I'm going to lose weight while I smoke this. Awesome, right? So you, you look at these targeted effects that you want to do when you look at THC. In hemp, you have this whole other problem, and it's twofold. The first one is scale. When farmers grow hemp, 
they grow hemp. They're growing 20, <laughs> 30, 100 acres of hemp. Yeah. We're talking millions of pounds is what they sell in hemp. Yeah. And, and THC grows in Chicago, you're going to have 5,000 square feet. That's it. Like you're going to you're gonna do a couple hundred pounds a week, you know, not a week, but a month. So you're doing a couple hundred pounds a month and, and it's not very much. And, you know, people are just smoking in into these rec shops and stuff. But, but yeah. when you're talking about hemp, it's every man, woman, and child and dog and cat and yeah. cow and everything is going to eat CBD. So it's, it's, so when you, when you look at that, it's a whole different creature on the scale of what they're producing. So I looked at problems I had, so let's scale up, right? So I want to make this stuff bigger. Well, the good news about the HPLC was they've been doing this kind of scaled big processing with it for like 30 years. So they have scaled plants. Every isolated vitamin we have, we don't make vitamins in America. We assemble vitamins in America. They're all made in India and China. So, so when you look at isolated products or isolated things, they all come from India and Asia. And so as raw materials. So we went over there and we made partnerships with groups over there that were doing this before hemp was even federally legalized. And we already had everything in place and we're already operating the machinery for a couple of years. So we knew what we were doing so we could build the supply chain. Mm -hmm. And we looked at how big could they go? So we went to their facilities and if people inquire, I have videos of all this, we went over to their, and we can arrange meetings when COVID's not going on, but we had large scale facilities that can do 50,000 pounds of biomass. So I said, okay, well I can put this in over here in the U S and we can process all this plant material and remove the THC because people get stuck. They get stuck when they try and bring it to market because they can't get the THC out. There's tons of crude out there just backlog. There's tons of distillate out there just backlog because they can't make it tea free. They can crash it to isolate, but then you lose all those other cannabinoids and your profile you wanted. You lose so much by doing that. It goes into a product they call mother liquor, which is all the other refuse that you can't get out, but it's all valuable. The, The stuff that's in there is worth a ton and our machinery can isolate, but it only really is cost effective to do this when I could do a couple hundred kilos a day per each machine to get up to about a thousand kilos a day production. So we went to the city of Moriarty. I went to my investors. Mm-hmm. We designed out the entire plant. We've got Clinger on board to build the thing. We have every piece of tech we need. Nothing has to be built or designed. It's all been already invented and vetted for several mm-hmm. years. But where we came in and did things a little different is I said, there's going to be people grow industrial hemp just to have hemp. Right. So like you go out there and you grow hemp just to get the biomass material to do stuff with it, make rope, make, you know, all these other products, the Henry Ford plastic, et cetera. So, so you have all these other side products you can make. I said, well, let's, let's look at the real chain of custody to which we partnered with Silvio McCalley and we're, we're working on a partnership with Algorand and blockchain to bring a blockchain inventory solution to market. So mm-hmm. that is one of the things that I'm currently working on because of the detailed work we did in our analysis of the chain and what what's moving but you start with a seed farmer then the seed farmer moves to your hemp farmer who's growing it for either industrial or food purposes then it moves from the cbd we'll take it from the cbd route to the farmer then chops that product down when it's wet then they transport it to get dried. Mm -hmm. So the first step is transport and drying, right? So drying is not a big deal in a more arid environment like New Mexico, potentially, or Colorado. Parts of Texas, you will need drying more towards the coast where it's very humid, your product will mold. So you need to look at humidity levels on whether your product will mold. And and people who are just getting started on this in Texas, don't just pile it up because it can just spontaneously catch on fire. Like in seed oil rags, there's stuff people don't know about this crop but 
That being said, there's reasons why you want to dry it. And one of those is it produces a bunch of steam off the plant. And that's where what they call the volatile terpenes. You can think of it as volatile because it's like alcohol, which vapors off at a faster than water. Yeah. Yeah. So all of those terpenes actually are evaporated off in drying. You can recapture that steam and get terpenes, right? So that's your first product. So it was about additional products. What, Mm -hmm. how many products can I get out of this thing in one run of stuff I need to do anyway? When you have a big drying room, you're just venting all of this, all of the plant off into space. You're not getting any terps and terps can sell for, you know, anywhere from a buck to eight bucks a gram easy, Mm -hmm. depending on what you're doing to them, how you're isolating them, what post product you're doing, how much you're refining them. And so, you know, and in bulk, it's cheaper, but it's still good money. So that was our first thought is we're going to use energy to dry and we're going to capture terpenes when we cool the steam and that will create another product. So then we thought, well, they transported this hemp to us. So what do we do next? So we're going to take it and dry it. Then we're going to store it in an external building. Then we'll bring it into our GMP ISO 9000 facility, which I would like to get USDA certified. If you can get all that, then you can distribute your product to everyone. So that is the goal. If you're not doing that and you're like, I'm just going to start a cheap crude facility, you're going to have a harsh awakening in about three years because you need to be doing this at a certain level at this stage in the game. The market's much more mature than it was in Oregon three, you know, two years ago. So the you capture the terpenes in the dryer, then you take that dry material, and we decided on doing a solvent-based recovery using organic ethanol or ethanol that we produce on site from our spent plant material, depending on whether we're doing an organic run or a non-organic run. And so that meant that it's less efficient than, say, methanol, or you can go with uh, isohexane, which they used at Gencana before they blew up with the big explosion. <laughs> yeah. So that wasn't, you know, it's the reason why they blew up is, in my opinion, you got something with a boiling rate at 140 and you're using equipment made for ethanol with a boiling rate at 175 in a hot environment. You're going to get a lot more vapor. So, yeah. they, so they popped. So you need different equipment operating at lower temperatures. And that's part of the issue. So what we do is we're closed loop. It's all under vacuum. You can't set it on fire to begin with mm-hmm. and ethanol is a lower rating than gas-based extraction like um say butane or whatever yeah. because it's not explosive initially on its own it's yeah. flammable but if you put it under vacuum constantly and never let that vacuum fall and have alerts to it then you will not have a chance of fire in that vacuum if you use ethanol proofed explosion proof equipment that doesn't have static that's all grounded then you're in a good position i find it safer than co2 because the co2 machines are under extreme pressure yeah and i do know of people who've popped bolts on those before so it's and you still here's the thing about co2 why we didn't choose it it's still an ethanol process that's what people don't get when you cold extract your plant material it's not decarboxylated so when you eat it, it's not doing anything for you. Oh, interesting. And a majority of CBD product needs to be eaten. So it's also not winterized. And if you're going to remove the THC or take it to additional steps, you're typically, if you're not doing a reactor-based chemical type conversion, you're going to take it through winterization and distillate, which means that you're still going to take that plant material and dump it into ethanol and then or methanol and then filter it through a filtration and chill it and Got do it. all that anyway, and then evaporate it. So everything that is CO2 and all the benefits of CO2 of the terpenes and this other stuff, you boil it all out anyway, just like ethanol. It's it's just, you're doing it 30% less efficiently. So Mm. we 
all the big guys seem to be settling on solvent-based extraction. Yeah. You take that plant material and you wash it in solvent. You get all the cannabinoids off the plant. And then that plant material, though, now has been soaked in ethanol. If you want to transport that washed plant material to somewhere else to do something with, like a field to till it into, which is a lot of what the smaller guys do or something like that, you're transporting a hazardous product. Yeah. You technically need to have a truck that can haul flammable material that's been soaked to death at all, that might be bio-waste, that might not be legal in your state to till into a field. Yeah. So what you have to do with that, in my opinion, is find a secondary process for it on site when you're doing 50,000 pounds a day. Yeah. Right? You just got to do something with it. So we settled on something that Bill Gates is doing, and we came up with this too before we saw him doing it, but we thought it was great that he was. There's a process called pyrolysis, which can be used on wastewater. Okay. One of the neatest things about pyrolysis is it's burning up the plant, but it's capturing all the gas and all of the vapors, the volatiles that burn off of the plant mm -hmm. as a fuel, as either syngas or biofuel. And then it makes this amazing product with a ton of uses called biochar. So biochar can be used for everything from fertilizer to make your soil up to 15% more efficient mm -hmm. um, because it makes homes for little microbes that live in the soil. It retains water. It makes your soil more bioavailable. You can take that biochar and do those things, but you can also, when it's been washed in solvent, and all the impurities have been taken away and it's run a certain way, that biochar can be made into something called a biochar supercapacitor, which is a very efficient energy storage system that uses just burned up plant material. Uh, and the best is coconut or hemp. Hemp is better but because it doesn't have the salt that coconut does, in the which causes impurities. Yeah. So if you wash hemp, and it's got a fast growth cycle, so if you wash hemp and you clean hemp, it makes very good biochar for biochar supercapacitors. So because they normally pay for things like washing and cleaning the plant material, we got to do it as a secondary process of our facility for Santa Fe Farms. So that was a first efficiency that we got. The next thing is to do pyrolysis, you have to heat that thing up to 700 degrees Celsius. That's a lot of oh, heat. Oh, wow, yeah. Yeah, so one piece, one-tenth of all the energy you put into it goes into just maintaining the process and building up that burn. But you get a nine times total energy return in energy generated. And that comes through the vapors that are coming off and getting recondensed, just like our terpenes. Mm -hmm. You're able to make concentrated biogas, biodiesel, and syngas. Like a, and that's just a, like a diesel fuel okay. and propane-type gas that you can just use to burn for energy. But then you get a bunch of heat. So we use that heat because we're, we're using big evaporators. If we make our own ethanol, which I'll get to in a moment, mm -hmm. and we make our own and we evaporate all of that solvent, the 50,000 gallons of ethanol that we're going to need per day that we're evaporating and reclaiming, you know, 95% of, but 5% leaves in this plant, yeah. you know, we're, we're, we're going to need a lot of heat to run the dryers and all of that. Well, that's the great news is all of that heat that vents off this unit, we can recapture into steam boilers for the most part, and then pipe that into our facility for energy efficiencies. So this thing is powerful. Fascinating. Yeah. Our evaporation, it's generating a fertilizer, which if you Google biochar fertilizer right now by the cubic foot for, for the boutique stuff, for people planting tomatoes in their backyard and stuff, it's up to anywhere from 20 to 30 bucks for a five pound bag. Like that's great. That's a great price. So wow. yeah, I mean, that's a great return if you make a fertilizer out of that. Now, if you, so the idea is to move it in phases, first phase fertilizer, second phase, we'd snap a biochar uh, super capacity facility on the back. Third phase is graphene, which is next level stuff. Yeah. That's uh, 
a stack of graphene the size of your phone could power a Tesla even farther than it could go today. You're talking weird Iron Man armor and stuff like that when you get to the graphene. <laughs> yeah. But there is a pathway to get there with hemp. And so bioplastics, the whole thing. The idea is that ethanol production fails because you have to truck it between all these different locations. You're using more gas than you're making by mm. moving it to all these places. The farmer has to truck it to the ethanol plant. The ethanol plant, you know, washes it, then they truck the GDGS off to another place. Mm -hmm. We're doing everything on site, including making our ethanol. Right now, processors can't get ethanol. And I was telling people for years, there will come a run on this product. Yeah. There will, it'll either be because processors are using so much of it that the ethanol producers get wise and start charging more for certain stuff, which they have been doing, yeah. or it'll be a big disruption that causes us either a fuel efficiency and improvement with pyrolysis and ethanol production that makes it as economical as gas rising gasoline prices causing us to get into that realm eventually mm -hmm. someday there's going to be a run on ethanol and it happened it was covid yeah you can't get ethanol right now it's all in hand sanitizer you just can't buy it yep. hey if you google it right now it's sold out everywhere yeah. and you're going to keep having supply chain disruptions of ethanol like that when a state closes an ethanol plant or opens a new one or whatever yeah. it just it gets it crazy so the cheapest way to do it is to get it yourself tax-free. Fill out something called the TTB, which is by the federal government. They're the the tobacco. They're like uh, they do tobacco and alcohol uh, oversight, and that's their thing is to make sure that you're oh, not you, a the regulatory body that yeah, that yeah. you need to get approval from if you're going to run it on on site. Right, exactly. Yeah. And so you get a permit from the TTB. You put in your own ethanol production. You take that biomass that's already been soaked in ethanol, and you put that in to start your mash. That's the best way to start a mash is with more alcohol because it's already got the proof right in it. You're washing it off the plant. Yeah. Then you add yeast, you add additional sugars, you add some enzymes to it. And now in your big fermentation vats, you're turning all of that plant material back into ethanol before you burn it up and make your energy and your efficiencies off of it. So you're making your own solvent from the plant. If you get organic biomass in, you use organic sugar and yeast, you make an organic ethanol that you can then run through your system. The whole system of what we designed runs off of one solvent, just ethanol. Yeah. The beginning for our wash, ethanol. The HPLC for the molecular isolation, ethanol. Yeah. The winterization, ethanol, everything. So that that way, we're not using weird stuff in there. We're not bringing in other strange chemicals. We can keep it organic and simple. We can do it ourselves. And the problem that drove up corn costs with ethanol and so on, the, the reason why ethanol didn't work is because they started buying up all this feed grain to turn into ethanol, which drove up the price of feed grain, yeah. which then drove up the price of ethanol. We're getting our, our mash trucked to us for free. It's by the farmer. They want it processed. Yep. We're, we're using it for a secondary use to drive down the cost for that farmer so they get some benefit out of it and drive down our carbon footprint. Because when we use pyrolysis, it's one of the only ways to industrially scale carbon out of the atmosphere. Every pound of that millions of pounds yep. of biomass that's grown out in the field is sequestered carbon. That's pulled out of the air when the plant grows to, to make it a carbon-based life form, you know? Yep. So when that turns into a full-grown hemp plant, you know, and in Tennessee, you might be, up, you know, 10 feet tall, that thing is then chopped down, you know, and taken out of the carbon chain mm -hmm. when we recapture it. So when we don't vent that gas into the atmosphere and we make it into a fuel, that's fuel we didn't have to get out of the earth. So it is yeah. a greener fuel. It didn't yeah. have to be transported as much. It didn't have any of those efficiencies. And our software is going to show it and give a carbon score 
for the end product. So you know, and we want to apply that to other industries. So you know, and through the entire chain, the end product you're using and what efficiencies they did to make it more carbon neutral. And that's going to be on a QR code right on the product. Yeah. So when you bring up your COA, you're going to be able to bring up soil testing. You're going to be able to bring up the carbon usage all the way down the chain, the energy input to get you your own product. And we think the consumers want that data. We think that they want a niche product that's targeted to them with only the molecules they want. That if companies want to make like a recipe for Coke, mm-hmm. you know, if you're a social influencer and you want a brand that gives you energy and fits your lifestyle and does your thing, and you want to bring that product to market for your fans to live your lifestyle, then we think that those targeted effects in a system that's socially conscious are going to be where people who want supplements and cosmetics, we yeah. think that's where they're going to be. No, I agree. And so what parts of the system do you have up and running right now at scale? What parts of the system are you still working on? I, I, I get how the system works, but what in practicality and in practice, in operations, what do you have and what do you not have at this point? So I've put together a 7,000 pound extraction facility down in Oregon that runs through crude. I've done another one in Oregon as well that runs all the way through distillate. We have a facility in Clatskanai, Oregon, which is a third facility that has the capacity to use the HPLC to isolate the cannabinoids that they want. Mm -hmm. And so the energy efficiencies were all pre-existing, including one from Stanford, which actually cools using the sun. It's a meta material out of a group called SkyCool, which is going to change the world too. Uh, it's a, it creates a 12% energy efficiency in cooling. All of those evaporators that are heating up need to be cooled to condense things. You look at your HVAC and everything, those are huge heating efficiencies. For the 50,000 pound plant, you're looking at a half million dollars of chillers. So this SkyCool technology doesn't need any big motors and stuff like that. It's 12 to 14% more energy efficient. We're plugging that in as well. That's already been developed. The pyrolysis machine has already been developed and implemented in Asia. Ethanol plants already exist. So the hard part was the processing stack, which we built all up for the chain. The efficiencies were all in how we combined these off-the-shelf technologies by going to the factory directly, getting factory support from the vendors, not through a third-party intermediary in the U.S., but the people who actually construct everything, which meant I needed five Mandarin-speaking employees, (laughs) five chemical engineers. I needed a couple of uh, fluid dynamic engineers. I needed oil and pipeline guys. Shout out to Larry Rumley at RMH Building Company down in Texas and Houston, who's our facilities group that we work with. All of these people had to come together to snap all these parts together in a new way. You think about this. You have a clock and you have a radio, right? Two different objects. Mm -hmm. But and if there were billions of clock radios <laughs> sold, right? So the person who put that together, yeah. genius on that. We have 20 different components with 30 different micro pieces down in their component chain, uh, typically to 100, depending on what they are. But we're building a clock radio. We're taking stuff that already exists and we're putting it together in a way to make it most efficient. Yeah. yeah. Clayton, this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, about the work that you're doing, what's the best way to get that information? Um, they can go ahead and read reach out to me at my email. So uh, to let them know, I did just set up a new company. So I am just getting that all going, which is my HPLC company. Mm-hmm. Our website, HPLC LLC, will be getting more built out in the last couple of weeks. My prior companies, of course, Biosmart Research, Rainier Distillers, but they can reach me at Clayton E. Turner. 
That's C-L-A-Y-T-O-N-E Turner, T-U-R-N-E-R at gmail.com for now while we're building out my domain and everything. It all got slowed up with uh, COVID. Yeah, so. everything. Everything's getting impacted by COVID. I'll make sure that the email address is in the show notes so people can click through and get that. Uh, oh, this actually, actually yeah. I just got a notification. We do have my HPLC email up too, uh, which is CEO at HPLC.solutions. Dot com or no just dot solutions okay dot solutions. so ceo at hplc.solutions is the email that they just brought online our website should be up in the next two weeks there you go i'll make sure that those are on the show notes so people can get to that clean this has been a pleasure i appreciate the time i love getting into the tech side of this i think there's so much opportunity for innovation there's so much opportunity for you know like really driving operational efficiencies and operational excellence in this and i i just think as the cannabis scales and as we uh, really bring it into mainstream and start working at it you know as a as a major industry, this is the kind of stuff that's going to make it work. So I really appreciate you taking the time with us today. Of course. And I'd like to invite you to a presentation I'm doing on this a three-part webinar for the National Hemp Association within the next month. Uh, we're going to be doing a big rollout of how other companies can do this, not even for money or anything, just to advise that you can go do this. If they want to contact me to do it, great. But we think that people, because this is an emerging industry, yeah. we think people need to green it now to gain the most benefit and it will impact their pocketbook immediately. They will see immediate efficiencies yeah. and, and insulation versus volatility in the market by all the different products they can make. And because they can control their entire supply chain, even their ethanol and solvent. So, and their energy production. I mean, there's just so much good here. That's great. I'll get the link from you and I'll put it in the show notes as well so people can get that. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. And uh, we will keep in touch. I'm curious to see how all this plays out, how the technology develops. And, and hopefully once we're out of this COVID situation, we'd love to come visit some of the facilities. Oh, that'd be great. I'll have you down to Santa Fe, down to Moriarty in Santa Fe anytime you like. Uh, Stephen Gluckstern, I'm sure, would love to meet you. It sounds great. I look forward to it. Excellent. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeldt. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.